One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is gonna catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I wanna know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Schulman, president and CEO of PayPal. And I'm delighted to have with me Abby Wambach. And I want to talk a little bit about Abby. But Abby, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Such an honor to be with you here at PayPal headquarters in New York City. It's awesome. Thanks so much. So I'm going to tell, like, you, everyone knows about Abby already, but I'm going to still tell a couple of stories about her. Um, so Abby was born in Rochester, yeah. New York, just outside of there. And, okay, what most people don't know is she was the youngest of seven siblings. He's done his research, yes, folks. Yes, I have. Okay, hmm. so I can only imagine. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> So she started playing soccer at the age of four years old. I think I was out of diapers at four years old. Abby was playing soccer at four <laughs> years old. And then at age five, she went into her first girls soccer league. And this is amazing. In her first three games, she scored 27 goals at age five. Okay, so immediately they put her into the boys soccer league and probably she scored 30 goals in the next three games, but they don't talk about that uh, in her uh, biography. She then went on to be a star player uh, in a high school in Rochester. She was All-American, Parade named her All-American, and she came out of high school as the number one recruit in the country uh, for uh, women's soccer. And she could have gone to any college that she wanted to. And the big colleges at that time in, in women's soccer were University of North Carolina, who I think had won like 15 NCAA tournaments. Yep. UCLA was another big soccer powerhouse. And Abby decided to choose the University of Florida, which, by the way, had only had a soccer program in existence for three years. Okay, And so this was a pretty radical choice for the number one recruit in the nation. And here's the great part of this story. In her first year, her freshman year, they made it to the NCAA tournament uh, where they won it and they beat the University of North Carolina, uh, which was, had have been so sweet yep. to have done that. So incredible. And then, of course, from there, she went on uh, to become uh, not only a club player, but really most famous for being a member of the Olympic team uh, from the U.S., the teams that Abby was a part of won two gold medals. Um, and then she also played uh, in the World Cup, which, of course, is the stage for uh, football, uh, as it's called, across the, across the world. She was named the uh, World Player of the Year, only the fourth female to have that honor and the first American uh, female to get that honor. And then, incredibly, in her last career, she and the rest of the American team won the World Cup in 2015, uh, which had to have been a thrill, and we'll talk about that in a second as well. She was named the AP Athlete of the Year, Women Athlete of the Year, the first soccer player to ever receive that award. 
Um, and then she was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Um, she is now an uh, activist uh, in the best sense of the uh, word. She's written two bestsellers. Her first one, Forward, was a New York Times bestseller. She's now just recently come out with a book called Wolfpack. And she advocates for uh, women's rights, for LGBTQ rights, and um, is an all-around great person. And I know I'm going to learn a lot from this. And Abby, I know our whole audience is looking forward to that. So okay. welcome again to Thank the you. show. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Well, first of all, um, you have a photographic memory, evidently, <laughs> because I don't even remember all of that stuff about myself half the time. Uh, and there is no prompter. There is no nothing here. He just remembered because he just read it. And that's amazing. Um, so thank you for doing your due diligence. Um, and I think having the life and the career and the childhood and all of it, you know, I think that there's so much good and so much stuff that we can talk about. And, you know, I've done a little research on you as well. Oh, okay. And I think that um, I think that you're fascinating. And I think that the steps that you've taken here at PayPal, I know we'll dig into to it some, but uh, I'm a huge fan of yours and just happy to be here for sure. Oh, that's great. That's great. So let's start off with being the youngest of seven. Yeah. Okay. Um, because that's... Um, you know, I was one of three. I was the oldest of three, and it was difficult enough. <laughs> um, so I'm curious how being the youngest of seven started to form a little bit of who you are. It must have had an impact. Yeah, so from the early ages, right, when I was five and I scored all those goals, um, you know, my mom actually, she, she asked me, she said, why didn't you pass the ball more? Um, and very defiantly, I said, well, I don't know what the problem is. I, you know, if the whole goal and the point of playing soccer is to score more goals than the other team and I can do that better than somebody else, then I don't get why I should pass the ball. And my mom just thought, oh, she's kind of right, but we're going to have to work on her, her humility a little bit. Um, and at the time, this is in like the mid 80s, there wasn't the plethora of little girls club soccer teams, yeah. like travel soccer teams that had elite talent on it. So that's when I went and played on the boys' teams. Um, and nowadays, if I were to have that same kind of talent at, at this time, I would be playing on girls' travel soccer teams. Right. So we've had a lot of progress. But growing up in this big family, you know, I was like literally born into a team. So I was learning things at, at infant ages um, about what it means to kind of comply and not ruffle people's feathers no. and not, you know, um, and fight for what you need and fight for what you deserve. Um, and I mean, stuff at the dinner table, like if you want seconds, yeah. you have to finish your whole plate first. And, um, and so, I don't know, I just have always had this competitive environment to train in. And, you know, my brothers and sisters never let me win, no matter how young I was. Right. They would throw me in, in the goal with the hockey goal with all the hockey gear on uh, and just like rail shot, slap shots at me. <laughs> and at first it's terrifying, like, don't get me wrong. But then like because of all the padding, you're just like, oh, OK, like you just close your eyes and hope that it doesn't like go in one right, of the eye right holes. Thing, yeah. um, and I, that's just how I grew up. I just grew up in a in a in a very athletic family. My, my dad was an athlete and all of my brothers and sisters played. So I was carted around from game to mm. game to game to game, whether it was basketball or soccer or hockey or baseball. Um, 
And I think because of that, that set me up to be comfortable in team locker rooms and team environments and made me really fascinated about how sociologically, like how human beings connect one to one, one to five, one to 10, one to 20, uh, and how you can kind of get a group of people from where they are to where they ought to be, kind of my basic definition of leadership. So yeah. I'm proud of the time that I spent uh, and the, the, the childhood that I had wasn't without hard times, wasn't without some traumas that I'm still trying to deal with. Um, you know, this, this idea of attention and, and my parents had seven of us and uh, there's seven of us vying for the attention of these two yeah. people. It's impossible to give the attention, uh, to sp spread your attention around equ equally. So um, those are the things that also made me who I am, yeah, right? And that's something sure. that I, I don't think that people talk enough about. That it's like, yes, we, all, we all have some trauma, but that trauma is partly made you who you are and, and brought you to this moment and um, is also a gift. And if you can find a way to, to, to figure out how to turn that trauma into, into like one of your greatest like superpowers, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the special sauce. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about some of that because you've had so many highs in your career and yet like all of us, you've had some lows yeah. as well. But let's skip forward now to um, maybe last year. Okay, and then we'll go in between. Cool. Um, so last year you gave a commencement speech at Barnard. I was telling you earlier, um, my wife, who's a professor there, was sitting on stage right behind you, and she came home and said, I just saw the best commencement speech I ever have seen. And I had given the commencement speech at Rutgers that same year, <laughs> and I said, you mean the best commencement speech at Barnard you've ever saw? She said, nope, best commencement speech ever. Um, and so this was all around this idea of Wolfpack and mm -hmm. this whole idea of how uh, women uh, can find their own power mm -hmm. um, and move ahead. And so could you talk a little bit about, you know, you had some rules that you were talking about to go do that. There was obviously a couple of uh, defining moments for you and inspiring moments that led you to this whole idea. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So you know, this is going to be a little bit of a long-winded answer, but, um, you know, after I retired, I found myself on stage standing next to Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning. We all know who those guys are. Yeah. We were all getting the same award, this icon award from the ESPYs. It's a nationally televised um, award show. It's basically the Oscars for sports. And I found myself on this stage just feeling so grateful, like, wow, we women, we have finally made it. Mm -hmm. Like, here we are. Um, I also felt like as a female professional athlete, I kind of was insulated from all the other oppression that women were going through because here I am, I've made it, I'm representing my country. So I felt like I was breathing rarefied air on some level. And then all three of us walked off stage and this moment just really hit me. I, I got slapped in the face with it and anger started to rise and I was very like, wow, what's happening? And, and what was happening was this, this reality and the, the, the understanding of all three of us walking into very different retirements. Kobe and Peyton, and they've earned every cent that they, that mm -hmm. they, that they earned. They, their hustling days were over. Mine were just beginning. They have to figure out where they're going to invest and spend their hundreds of million dollars collectively earned. And I have to figure out how the hell I'm going to pay my mortgage. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I thought that I was different. 
I thought that this mm. didn't apply to me. Interesting. And here I am, fearful and having no idea what the heck I'm going to do next. So um, first and foremost, what do most women do is we question what our responsibility was in this in this moment. How did we get? How did I allow myself to get here? And here's the thing, you know, the system wasn't set up for women to succeed. Um, women are just finding their way in this business world of a system. And, uh, and, I, and I dedicated myself that night to making sure that nobody else who was walking off that same stage would have that feeling, that experience uh, of feeling less than. Because, you know, if this is my story, this made me understand that this is actually every woman's story on the mm -hmm. planet, yeah. walking away from their job with less than their counterpart which means they have to work longer. So, you know, I found myself on this Barnard stage, you know, in the preparation of, of the speech, I really wanted to be good. You know, I'm an athlete, I'm a competitor. I wanted to be, I wanted it to be the best speech people have heard. And while I was creating the speech, it was important to me that I wasn't trying to tell the people what I think that they should want to hear or, or what would, would get the best claps. Um, or the most applause, I just thought, okay, what do I know to be true? Yeah. And at 21, 22, 23 years old, and, and by the way, the Barnard women are, are with it. They're like, they're woke. They're the wokest woke that ever woke, yeah. right? And, um, and so I also knew that it needed to be relevant and modern and of the time. Uh, and, you know, in 2018, it just a couple years after the 2016 election, things felt a little bit tenuous and nobody kind of knew what was happening and everybody was like, what is happening? And I just needed to go back to what I believed to be true, what I knew about my life. And the only way I could do that is by really unearthing and figuring out um, how it was I came to be in that moment sitting there writing. And thank God for my wife because she's an author and really helped cultivate this idea, this message. Uh, and throughout this process of writing the speech, I, um, I've been obsessed with this, this YouTube video that I saw about these wolves and how these wolves being reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park basically changed the way that the rivers were running. The rivers were not running great uh, before they were introduced. The, the riverbanks were, were collapsed and eroded because the deer and the, the animals were eating away the vegetation. So here, um, this, this beautiful YouTube video, this TED Talk, talked about how when you reintroduce these wolves into this ecosystem, you know, they hunted the deers and it displaced the deers so that the vegetation started to grow back and this river started to run better. And I just was like, holy cow, like the, we are the wolves, like women are the wolves, like who are feared uh, in certain ways to be a threat to the system actually will be the system, system salvation. Um, little long-winded answer. It's going to be a little bit longer, and I talked. No, 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 because you have some rules yeah, too that you're talking about. about and which I talked are about um, these rules in in the speech. Uh, one of them is making failure a fuel. Something that not many people understand that the failures of our lives are actually beacons. They're like they're mm -hmm. like flashlights. Like oh, like here's something I need to actually dig Such into. Such an incredible, you know? powerful point, and yeah. difficult to hear, and really and hard to do. Yeah really hard to do. You know, I have fallen off. I have made mistakes. Um, you know, and I talk about the story of being on the women's national team, being in the youth national team programs and being 16 years old, finding myself in the senior women's locker room uh, and the door in which they would leave every single day to go out to training. They had this little picture 
And you might think it'd be a picture of them celebrating or, or something, but in fact, it was of the Norwegian national team obnoxiously celebrating the previous year's win over the United States. And I remember being 16 years old, mm. realizing for the first time, oh, that's what they do here. They, they highlight the failures of their lives. They turn towards the failures of their lives. And, um, and it's interesting because it's actually, you know, my third medal, my third medal, third place medals that I've won. I've, 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 I've won a, a few, although I call them, I've lost these medals. <laughs> I didn't win the gold. Right. Those are the ones that I have on display in my life, in my, in my world. Um, I talk about demanding the ball. Women especially, yeah. um, we are made to only be given one emotion, and it's just to be grateful because so many women, especially because women are now really coming into the world and, and understanding who they can be and, and, and reclaiming their power, um, women are only taught, oh, well, well this, all of this stuff has been given to you rather than they've earned it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really valuable thing that women, yeah. yes, you can be grateful, but also demand what you deserve. Um, and then championing each other is really important for, for not just women, but for people. Yeah. You know, there's so much competition and we never competed against each other on the national team. We always competed with each other. So when Alex Morgan scores a goal or Mia Hamm scored a goal, I was like, okay, I got to turn my volume up right now. I got to do that, not just for me, but it's for my team. Yeah. And if I'm rising, so will they. We all have to collectively buy into this. So, well, super long-winded answer, but um, in the end, the Barnard women responded. I was a little bit nervous because there's a moment after the, the story about Yellowstone and reintroducing the wolves where I tell the women, Y'all picking up when I'm laying down here, right? And that was going to be the make or break moment. Right. And they were like, ow, you know, and they were screaming. And I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, this, this yeah. landed. So that's good. So let, let me keep going there because there were other parts of that speech that I thought were amazing. Part of this is that there's this mythology that you're trying to break uh, through that is sort of like, Little Red Robin, Riding Hood, and, you know, the wolf and that kind of thing. Like, can you talk about sort of that, how you're trying to break through some of totally. those mythologies and how important it is to, to change that paradigm? Yeah, there was this book that I read called Women Who Run With the Wolves, and the whole premise of this book is to kind of flip the fairy tale. Yeah. And that's essentially what I was trying to highlight with this Little Red Riding Hood um, anecdote and story. People don't understand and don't realize, especially with all of the information and technology just like coming at us in every possible way. We're in taxis, um, you're on your phone and advertisements. People don't understand the, the subconscious psychological effects yeah. that, that happen. The same thing goes for children's books. The same thing goes for stories, oral stories that are, that are passed down from movies. generation and movies. Yeah. Um, and so everybody knows this basic Little Red Riding Hood story. And I understand there's many different interpretations of this story. But the, for me, one of the basic in interpretations is that girls need to stay on the path. And um, the rule that they're trying to show girls and, and, and the box that they're trying to put little girls into mm -hmm. is one of meekness, is one of smallness, and one of um, quietness. And these are messages that are handed down from, from eons ago to women, and um, for me, 
everything good in my life has happened when I ventured off the path. Yeah. Every single thing. Now, I thought it was a very cool statement. You know, Abby, you were never Little Red Riding Hood. You were always the wolf. And little kids are, like, super scared. You know, they ask me questions like, what do you mean by you were always the wolf? And I'm like, well, you're just not old enough. You don't understand quite yet. Um, But that's just it. Like, I don't want to be put into a little box of meekness, smallness, and quietness. And nobody does. Nobody wants that. We all want to be out there and expressing and trying new things and making mistakes and, and learning and growing and, and experiencing life, you know, like, and I think you probably totally can relate to this. Um, you know, nothing good really does happen when you like follow the herd, you know, like you have to step off and do something unique and do something that is uniquely your own. Uh, and so that is essentially, and, and, and I caution parents and people and children to be mindful of the, the stories and the messages that they are taking in. You know, for instance, and this is kind of a funny story, but it's a true one, you know, Hooters commercials. When I'm watching television and a Hooters commercial comes on and I'm sitting with my daughters and my son, by the way, we mm-hmm. cannot forget about our young men, um, I pause it. And I point them to the screen and I said, what do you see here? And we want to encourage our children to point out oppression, injustice, and uh, objectivity, right? And I think that our daughters are like, well, of course, women trying to sell chicken wings with their breasts. And and we laugh because it's kind of hilarious how right on they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, this is not like a Hooters ad. Um, but I asked them, what are women's bodies for? And they're like, women's bodies are for moving. Women's bodies are for jumping. Women's bodies are for debating and thinking and feeling and growing. Um, and, and we tell them, you know, sometimes things like this will happen where it will make you feel weird, where you'll see an advertisement or you'll see a woman with a a terrible scowl on her face and she's barely wearing any clothes. And that's a marketing ploy to make you feel weird about your body. But really what's wrong with that situation is that not you. And so we are pointing these things out to our, to our daughters and our son, because that's, that is our job here. We can't prevent them from all of this stuff. Nobody ever will. So what our job is as parents is to point them and make them understand what they are seeing so that they're not trying to figure out what the world is trying to impress upon them. They're actually figuring it out for themselves. Yeah. Um, There's one of these uh, favorite quotes I have um, that I wish I had come up with, but it's actually Justin Trudeau's dad Mm. who came up with it that said that diversity is a fact but inclusion is a choice. Mm. And I love that because it says that we actually make a difference in how we see the world, how we embrace the world, how we accept uh, the world. And you have now become a very outspoken advocate of uh, inclusion, equal pay. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think about that and... uh, how companies can step up to address those issues. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm like preaching to the God right here about, and the person who has actually taken it on their back 
to be the one, the first one out there doing this stuff. And I'm sure there's other companies doing many things, but to be proactively putting your own money towards your company to make sure that equality and equal pay is actually really a true thing that's living and breathing inside yeah. of your doors, I commend you for that. Thank um, you, Sebi. I love that. I love that Trudeau quote. I think that, um, you know, diversity and inclusion is so interesting. Ten years ago, the word inclusion wasn't even here. Right. So we are progressing, which is cool. Um, and diversity for me is is the checking the box, the box exercise. It's making sure that um, your company has diversity and there's a systematic way for you to be able to decide that. It's pretty easy to figure out. Inclusion is the harder part. Absolutely. And it's the choice, like you, yeah. like Trudeau talked about. And I think that that's really important because diversity is making sure that you're hiring the right, uh, the right kind of people to diversify your workforce and, or your employees. Um, and inclusion is making sure that those people have the support that they need to be able to produce, right? Diversity is making, is, is making sure you hire a trans person. And inclusion is making sure that that trans person has a bathroom to safely go into. Um, diversity is making sure that you are hiring uh, women, right? And getting to some sort of a 50-50 um, percent model. And inclusion is making sure that those women actually have a voice when they get to that mm -hmm. table. Yep. You know, because otherwise, if you have one without the other, it doesn't matter. You're just wasting your time. Um, and so I've been kind of on this path, this journey, this, this, this um, you know, it's righteous, I think, because uh, I think that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of companies out there that, that they don't want to be the first one to the party, think you are actually. Yeah. Um, and, and what I think is really important is, especially in this ever-changing economy and the fast-pacedness of technology, you have to really get ahead of this stuff. Um, not just because you want to save yourself uh, and make more money and, and be modern, but because of the people that work inside of your company and the culture that you're actually shaping. Right. I don't know why, but I am obsessed with corporate culture. It is the weirdest obsession, <laughs> I admit it. But I think that there's something so fascinating about taking a, so many people and putting so many people together yeah. from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds and all different countries and all different ethnicities and all different and all different and all different and trying to like figure out how you can actually run this thing in a positive way that can make real change. Um, and, and, and affecting that culture from the bottoms-up approach is what I'm really obsessed with because though you folks like you are out there, um, I think that culture change and culture shift actually happens from the people. Um, and the products that you're putting out there and the things that, that big corporations are making will be influenced by the workers and the culture of that workforce. Yeah. And I, I, I just I think, that, um, I think that Fortune 500 companies... Um, I think CEOs, they have to just make the commitment to just say, we need to pay our people the same. And then they have to come up with a system and how to do that. And you've done that. Yeah. Um, and you have actually like a specific number that you know how much it costs you in the end, which is so valuable. It's so valuable for everybody else. Why aren't we doing this? And then the amount of money that brings back into your company, not just in retention and being able to hire the best of the best yeah. from out there to, in here, um, but 
it also like, it gives people an air. It gives your employees this feeling like Dan has our back. Dan is doing the things that everybody else is talking about. You're actually doing it. And, um, and so for me, I'm just going to be pointing everybody back to PayPal and <laughs> you, like, how do we do this? And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm embedding myself into the world of corporate cultures, trying to build uh, companies from the inside out with leadership companies and programming. And now I'm just going to be like, well, let's just, like, go see what Dan did because I think it worked. <laughs> That's funny. I, I, thanks for that. But I think it's like a no-brainer. In today's age and world, like, to not pay equally across ethnicity or gender makes, it makes no sense. Right. I mean, just 100% makes no sense. Um, and I could go on and on about it. I won't. I thought you did a great job on that. Here's my last question for you, uh, Abby. And this has been, uh, we could go on and on. I know. But I don't even know. Like, yeah, I have I, no idea We could just go. Um, so <laughs> this thing about failure. Um, this show's called Never Stand Still because I do, I've done a lot of sports um, as well. I've done uh, martial arts for a long time. And, you know, one of the adages is you can't stand still uh, ever um, because then you get hit and you always get hit. Mm -hmm. And then you got to figure out how to recover from that um, and move forward. And you've had, like, arguably some of the highest highs mm. in, that an athlete can have. Um, but you've also had struggles as well. And could you, if you're comfortable with it, totally. talk about some of those struggles and how they, how you were able to address them head on and then turn them into, as you mentioned, into a force for positive change? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for asking, because I think that um, oftentimes when I, I go on podcasts or I get on stage, you know, folks are a little bit afraid to talk about the real stuff. Yeah. And the real stuff is where people lean in real stuff especially the hard stuff the failure stuff is where people out there who also have failed they kind of like secretly raise their hand they're like me too yeah. and they then then in that moment feel less alone so um, right after I retired um, in 2016 I was pulled over and I got a DUI and I've been struggling with the retirement and, and the alcohol for kind of a, a while um, and as an athlete I had I had the ability to like turn the light switch on and turn it off I was like very high functioning alcoholic. Um, and so this moment for me offered me an opportunity. And because I had mm. this experience for, for my whole life, literally failing on a daily basis, whether it be at not being able to shoot with my left foot, whether it be at missing this goal, whether it be at whatever we're talking about. Um, I had this, I had this, I had this experience of really figuring out how to fail and then begin again, fail and then begin again. Yep. Um, and I remember talking to my mom from the police station and just saying, you know, I'm going to turn this into the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, right then and there. Huh? Literally that night. And I was wow. so, I was so embarrassed. Um, and I didn't even know at this point how, how much media attention it would get. I didn't know I would be on the ticker. I took pictures <laughs> on my phone just to never forget. Um, and I think that that is really important. And I think that the way we respond to some of these failures of our lives is what character is. It's not the failure. It's the response to it. And I think people get that very confused. I think people think, 
oh, I failed, that makes me a bad person. We are not a byproduct of our behaviors. We are, our character is defined by our responses to those behaviors. Um, and you know, I was sick. So I think that I really had to figure it out. I've been three years sober ever since that night. Um, really proud of that. Congrats. And, and without that night, none of this stuff happens. Yeah. None of the Wolfpack, yeah. none of the Barnard speech, none of, none, of, um, none of me really figuring out what I wanted to do after, this is hilarious, <laughs> just like with a hammer outside this window. I'm so sorry We're for We're here those. in New York City. Yeah, this is, this yeah. is New York, baby. Yeah. Um, yeah, so without that, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a moment to reconsider or figure out what it is like that I was doing to lead me there. You know, so we have to understand that, like, our human existence and our human beingness is not made to be perfect. And the yeah, only way we get great point. the only way we get to to any sense of of peace uh, is in some ways by making mistakes. And hopefully, they're they're not going to be um, life threatening. And I know that I put my life and many other people's lives in danger. And for that. I'm like so sorry, but truly it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I needed it to happen. I needed it to be a very public thing and I needed it to be a very embarrassing and shaming thing um, for me to kind of like snap out of the yeah. addictive pattern cycle that I was in. Um, so I'm really proud of myself. And, and you know, I know people say this all the time, but, but uh, if I couldn't get sober, and if I can really face that, that moment in time for me, like anybody can do anything. Uh, you just have to, you just literally have to put your mind to it. Yeah. Abby, I want to thank you. Um, I really enjoyed it. I hope everybody yeah. uh, out watching this uh, enjoys it uh, as much as I did. I learned a ton from you. And uh, it's just an honor to be with you. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah.